Welcome back to Something Private, a podcast for Southeast Asian women by Southeast Asian women exploring conversations around health, the self, community, and love. My name is Nicole, and I am your producer and host. Before we start, I'd like to give a shout out to The Arts House. This podcast was presented as part of Night Spin 182.7 FM, a program curated by them, commissioned by Singapore Writers Festival and organised by the National Arts Council. This is one part of our two-part special with them and you can listen to the two full episodes on swfspin.live now. This year's theme for the Singapore Writers' Festival is intimacy. It's been a year of quarantines and social distancing. This year's festival interrogates notions of community-mindedness, loneliness, mental health, and our need for physical and emotional human interaction. We're looking at what intimacy looks like in a time of the pandemic and a lack of human contact. How has this scenario changed our understanding of our relationships with ourselves, others, and the environment? As I read through that little blurb out loud to myself, I realised it's super up our alley. I've been producing a health and wellness podcast a little over a year now, which primarily features stories of other women. And it's great. Many of you have divulged your most intimate stories with me. And to me, listening is my favourite part of what I do. But it's also dawned on me that I haven't really had time to reflect on my own relationship with intimacy as a result. Like, when was the last time I got a touch of a man? So I thought I'd get the help of a friend who, in her quest in writing a novel, has had time to sit with the thought of how we navigate the world of intimacy in a society that is modern and yet conservative to a large degree. Interesting? I'm Bali Korjaswal. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, I am a novelist. I've written four novels. So the most recent was The Unlikely Adventures of the Shergill Sisters. My international debut was Erotic Stories for Punjabi Widows. I've also published some op-eds and essays about shame and taboos and censorship, um, particularly in small conservative communities. Can you give me a brief summary of the book? Mm -hmm. So Erotic Stories for Punjabi Widows um, is not a collection of erotic stories for (laughs) actual Punjabi widows, as a lot of people tend to think for some reason. Uh, it's about a young British Indian woman named Nikki who has dropped out of law school and is trying to redeem herself to her family. Uh, she signs up to teach creative writing courses at the um, Sikh temple in South Hall uh, in London. And she finds out very quickly that the women who've signed up for her classes have some interest in literacy, but more interest in telling their stories mm. and in telling stories about sex, about mm. things that they weren't allowed to talk about before. And so they start this illicit storytelling club that becomes kind of bigger and bigger and grows out of control. Mm. Let's start off with talking a bit about the inspiration behind your book. Why did you decide to write it? So for me, I think there was always a, a, a huge fascination with women that seem to be invisible in a society and the idea of sexuality, how we perceive women and sexuality. When I first learned about sex as a child, like when I was, you know, I think I was like in primary school when I first learned about sex, my first thought, I think everyone's first thought is, oh, my parents, my, wait, my parents did that? <laughs> and then you like find all these excuses, like, no, I must be adopted. <laughs> or, or no, they were the ones that definitely definitely didn't do that there you know and I think for me it went yeah my parents did that but then also it went further back to like my grandparents did that because particularly like my my grandmother in particular just seemed so asexual to me Mm. um and I think a lot of kind of traditional Indian women are you know are are 
perceived and and um, portrayed uh, by our society um, as as yeah as, as not really having any sexual value or any mm. sexuality so I couldn't fathom that when I was young and over the years I kept returning to that question um, the reality settled in obviously that yeah of course the women of that generation did have sex you know mm. they, they they had a lot of children but what what then bothered me more was you know was that was that a choice on her part um she was very young when she got married did she know what was even happening to her because mm. i've heard like some some of my friends say that their grandmothers have told them much later in life you girls these days are so lucky you you know all these things because mm. i didn't even have it i didn't figure out the connection between sex and having children until my fourth child Wow. Yeah. So did not understand like all these things about their bodies and all these very, very fundamental things. Mm. And to me, that was just endlessly fascinating. And I wanted to create a world where the women that kind of sex happened to, mm. you know, uh, actually take charge mm. and, and, and control their narratives. Mm. So yeah. I'm really interested in some of the themes that you covered mm. in this book and the fact that, you know, it's on international level. I think that the fact that everybody else gets a peek into what Asian culture is mm. like, especially a more like diaspora community. Yeah. So I want to know what are some of the themes that you particularly wanted to focus on in this book mm. and why? Uh, one thing that I really wanted to explore was the idea that um, we start at different places with, with feminism mm. and with activism and, and with that sense of independence as well like Nikki's character Nikki feels that she's very oppressed because mm. she grew up in Britain but her parents to her are, are very traditional mm. and then she meets these women who you know experience oppression on a very very different level on mm. a very fundamental level and she's a little bit impatient with them because she feels that they should be like, like she kind of feels that her job is to liberate them mm. she mm. kind of feels like a savior and I, I think that was the most fascinating thing for me to explore was that we all start from different places that um, the, these women do actually have quite a streak of independence in them, but they've been limited in mm. how they could express that independence, and that's really not their fault. Mm. Um, and a lot of their conservative ideals and a lot of their um, outlooks on the world were necessary for survival mm. in the context that they came from. So I really wanted to explore how, how um, yeah, fe feminism across the spectrum is really, really informed by cultural context mm. and history. Mm. And yeah. There are some themes like you covered, like marriage, mm. you know, independence, mm -hmm. obviously sexuality. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering how much of that is a reflection of like your own upbringing and like personal experiences. Mm. Um, I would say a lot of those things were in the context of my of my upbringing. Um, I think the idea that that after a girl got educated, then sh then the next step was marriage, mm. um, and that and that you had to have this. You had to have a purpose. You had to have a, a thing that you were doing, which I think is a very, I wouldn't say it's just a Punjabi thing. I think it's very Asian, mm. Asian kind of mentality of like, you always need to be, um, you know, hitting that next milestone and mm. you need to be doing something and you need to have that title. You need to have a title, you know, it's you, true. You can't just be aimless. Like you have to, you have to stay on a treadmill. Mm. Um, and Nikki's character doesn't. She goes to law school because she gets the marks to go to law school. And then when she's there, she's like, I don't, care about this I don't understand what's going on she hasn't really found her passion mm. and this idea of finding your passion is quite secondary to you know the pragmatism that I think mm. our parents generation had instilled in them and 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 want to instill in us um, things are quite different for us we have 
an enormous privilege to not prioritize pragmatism, to not yeah. pri have to prioritize survival. That tension for Nikki was very much there. And then there were other things too, like yeah, the the um, the confusion I think that I that that I have found quite frustrating with arranged marriage versus forced marriage two very different things mm. like arranged marriage is something that people do that a lot of people are very happy with and that is still done in a in a modern context around the world with you know in the Indian diaspora and really if you think about it tinder is kind of <laughs> a way it's of arranging maybe not marriage but <laughs> arranging you know people together there's a bit of ickiness to the fact that your parents are doing the arranging mm -hmm. and that's why like it was never for me but I think that a lot of people conflate it with forced marriage and the mm. extreme stories that they hear of like young girls being you know dragged into these marriages with older men mm. in rural villages and and always associating it with violence rather than love rather than you know this is what this this, this is what families are doing mm. to ensure that their offspring are are happy and 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 um, staying within a context that's familiar to them. So, I mean, there are lots of nuances in, in, in all of those things that I, I was very, very curious about. And that, that definitely came from just my observations around me of, you know, relatives um, who did kind of favor the arranged marriage way of doing things and who did have conservative views and my silent rejection of those things that couldn't always be vocally expressed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the, the, the pen is mighty in that way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Did you watch Indian, Indian matchmaking? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I binged it. I <laughs> it's love so good. It. It's so good. I cannot wait for the second season. <laughs> I, th I think the the issue with that with Indian matchmaking was um, that that there was a lot of pressure on the girls mm. to adjust. There was a lot of talk about the girls mm. having to adjust, the girls having to compromise. Uh, there was a lot it's of true. emphasis on the girls' looks. And whether they were fair and all those things, whereas with the, the you really didn't get that very much. That the boys were allowed to be a lot more complex and nuanced, but the girls had to be, had to kind of adapt. It's true. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. Especially Apana. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think they painted her in a really bad like this one. I mean, that was the on, yeah. the on the part of like the producers, right? Yeah. I think they, they wanted to make a villain out of her. Yeah. 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 Going on to my next point is that you know I think stories of like diaspora communities there are many stories written about mm. it and like commonly explored but mm. I think what makes your book really interesting is that you took like a spin mm. with the erotic <laughs> stories right and yeah. I want to know a bit about the process mm. of your research because mm. I'm imagining that you would have to put yourself in the shoes of like mm -hmm. these women who are older Punjabi women right yeah. and then thinking about the sexual fantasies and the experiences, what was that like, like yeah. for you? So in terms of the, the, the kind of the common narratives and diaspora fiction, I think I grew up with a lot of the, the sort of, early, like in the 90s, there was a lot more space on bookshelves for mm. Indian diaspora writers, um, particularly women. In a lot of those stories, identity was the story. Mm. You know, identity, like you know, the, the search for identity was the story. Yep. And I feel that as we've kind of built from that, we've been able to say, okay, yes, the search for identity is one aspect of it. But how about we, you know, expand on this? How about we, um, you know, unpack it and think about aspects of identity that we want to explore, like sexuality, like mm. gender, and bringing in humor to mm. that, bringing in dark elements of that as well. So I think that was... That was what I was trying to achieve with erotic stories for Punjabi widows was being like, well, our stories, yes, they can be about identity, but they can also be mm. 
you know, about, about just a whole lot of other things as well, because we're multifaceted. In terms of research, I actually was only able to get to London after I had written maybe half of the, the novel. I had lived in the UK for a year when I was writing uh, my first novel, Inheritance, and I had gone to Southall quite a bit uh, because I had family friends there, and I found it fascinating. I thought it was this place where India from the 1950s had basically been fossilized in London. So like the street signs, some of the street signs mm. were in Punjabi um you could at the time that i was there you could pay for a beer at the pub in rupees <laughs> which i thought was really interesting um and it, and there was something incredibly comforting about being in a new country and yet stepping off a train and suddenly being in a place that felt like your family was everywhere that felt mm. like home but then you know then i also thought well there's also something quite there's also a downside to this insularity because it means that if you don't conform to this community, yeah. those same people that are always around you to support you can also um, turn on you, mm. you know, or, or can also reject you. I, I guess two years into writing the manuscript, I had the characters in mind. I had Nikki, the main character, and I had kind of the different widows in mind. And I just kind of walked around observing things as if I was them. You know, I, I looked at things through their perspective. I, I didn't speak to as many Punjabi widows as I would have liked to. I didn't quite know how to approach yeah. them. And in hindsight, I think I, I, I should have been braver with that. I'm trying to be braver with research now. I, I spoke to a friend's grandmother and, 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 and talked to you know some other people that she knew. And more of the details that I got were surrounding those intimate aspects of their lives. Were not actually, I, I didn't feel comfortable actually asking yeah. people directly. And, and after all, I wasn't writing, you know, reportage or, yeah. or nonfiction. Um, but I did get a lot of good details about like, like when they got married, like how did they feel about, you know, leaving their families? Mm. What was it like when they met their husbands for the mm. first time? So those sorts of things. What was a common experience among these women? Um, a very common experience was that marriage marriage just kind of happened. Like mm. it was like they came of age and It's like then, the next step for them, right? Yeah. And they were all they, they seemed to be quite young, like my grandmother, but they didn't actually go and live with their husbands until they were older. So that's a detail that I put into the book. Um Interesting. Yeah, so they like they were kind of promised to someone at the age of like fourteen. But they didn't actually go and live with their husband until they were like 17 or 18. Mm. So there was a little bit of time for them to kind of prepare for marriage. Although I had questions, unanswered questions about, you know, what that preparation actually looked mm. like. So I think it was a lot of here's learning how to cook. Here's learning how to, you know, sew his buttons on or whatever. Yeah. I don't think there was any. I sense that there wasn't much warning mm. about what to expect in the bedroom mm. um, and, 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 and what you know, they were allowed to say no to or what they were allowed to, to do themselves. And yeah, as, as I began to kind of distinguish the characters from each other, I, I started to think of them as different individuals that I had seen around South Hall that I had observed and, and built their their identities from there. Can you give me an example without like actually reading <laughs> out? Yeah. Or like keeping it like quick oh, PG I mean, I think it's pretty explicit. Um, <laughs> there are parts where the women talk about so they, the, there is a point in the novel where Nikki, the main character, asks the women why every time they talk about genitalia, they refer to it in terms of vegetables. Like they, <laughs> they're like his aubergine or <laughs> like the banana or whatever. 
And and then she realizes that that is actually quite culture specific because mm. the women grew up. There's so much taboo and there's so much unsaid around sex that no one actually knew what the proper words were for genitalia. They only knew how to refer to them in reference to things from their own world. Yeah. So they're in their domestic world of groceries. <laughs> uh, that you know, in terms of size and shape of, of particular body parts, uh, they you know that was that was the best comparison that they could come up with. Um, but then there's a part too when interestingly the women say we don't know what these words are in Punjabi so we use these but we know what they are in English and they all kind of rattle off the most obscene mm. words in English for you know everything because they've heard that around them because they, they they've lived in London their kids you know they, they've heard their kids swearing and their kids saying those things and and I thought that was really fascinating that there was this this huge like you know it's such such intimate things about ourselves yep. that we don't have words for we don't even have labels for yep. I think that's really interesting I think it's quite common in like Asian yeah. culture right in, in Chinese also we do have like small little like parts that we don't term properly yeah right? and then the terms that you do have are like very vulgar right they're the kinds of things that like you wouldn't say that kindly yeah. like you wouldn't say you're saying it as an insult so yeah. it's either you can you can like genitalia especially women's genitalia is disgusting and insulting it's the worst thing you can call someone or it is unspoken of mm. like there's nothing there's there's nothing neutral or positive yeah i want to go on to the impact of your book how was it received by your community <laughs> that's a good question because i i have only actually heard very positive things i've only been approached you know by by people from my community and particularly young men which is really cool hmm. yeah particularly um, men in their 20s young men who have seen this kind of discrimination and who have you know who have who have seen the ways in which the communities can can neglect women sometimes or or um forget about sexuality in mm. that way a number of them have approached me to mm. say um that they loved the book that they introduced the book to their parents um i know i had a, a young man who came up to me at a at a reading and a talk that i did at aware i think it was last year or the year before and he said um that his father he was a young Punjabi man he said his father is in his 80s and mm. never reads anything but the sports section yeah. in the Straits Times and he handed my book erotic stories to his father and his father read it in three days and loved <laughs> it which made me really happy and I and I think that has something to do with the idea of representation the yeah. idea that we break these taboos when we see our people in these stories mm. when we see that yeah, we we do these things and it's okay for us to do these things. Mm -hmm. So making the invisible visible for me is really, really important. I've I've heard that there was some talk that someone wanted to invite like, you know, young Sikh artists to and then someone someone at the top said, Oh, but don't invite Bali Karjaswal because she always paints our community in a negative light. Which to me is very interesting because I it's not in my interest to be a publicist for a community, you know. <laughs> like I'm going to, and I'm I don't think I portray the community in a negative light at mm -hmm. all. I think I portray it as it is. And my 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 whole reason for writing fiction is to get at the truths and I don't think that it serves anyone for, for us to just say, no, everything's fine. We're model minorities. We're great. Everything's mm. everything's working just fine uh, because it isn't. And that's OK. Like every community has these issues yep. uh, and I don't see how we're going to do better for everyone. I don't see how we're going to be more inclusive if we shut people out. 
Yep. Um, but again, a, a lot of what I write about is kind of the insidiousness of that kind of, you know, that whispering and mm. that gossiping. And the people who try to kind of cut me out are actually doing all the, the things. Exact yeah, people, yeah. Right? yeah they're, they're kind of proving me right. <laughs> like, when I say that there is, there are, there's, there's a network of gossiping aunties. Um, and then a network of gossiping aunties actually do exactly <laughs> what I'm like, you see, this is why I have to write about it. It's true. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Mm. We're taking a short break. Something Private is a podcast produced by VFM. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your favourite podcast to get notified the minute we drop a new episode every Tuesday, Asia-Pacific time. This episode was made in collaboration with our friends at The Arts House in celebration of Singapore Writers' Festival 2020. I have to say, it's quite a dream to work with the guys at Singapore Writers' Festival. I remember when this podcast was in its infancy a year ago, I attended a little podcast workshop organised by them at the Asian Civilization Museum. And honestly, it was quite an inspiration to starting something private. It's an honour. She's fangirling. SWF goes digital this year following the theme Intimacy. How have you guys noticed your relationships changing? As usual, I want to hear about it, so drop me a DM on Instagram at somethingprivatepod, or if you like, you can email me at nicole at somethingprivate.fm. Now back to the episode. How does your book explore like the other parts of intimacy, like emotional, intellectual, mm. spiritual, and mm-hmm. experiential? Yeah. Yeah, I guess I guess there's there's quite a bit about family mm-hmm. in the novel, like about the relationship that Nikki has with her sister, who's more conservative, uh, mm-hmm. more traditional than she is, um, and about the rift that's created between them because of their different beliefs and their different their their different outlooks on you know what what are the next steps to take in life as as young modern women in Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also the relationship that Nikki has with her mother that's quite strained. And and mothers and daughters are quite a familiar theme as well in the novel with the other major character who's Coolwinder, who um, lost her daughter to an act of, of violence um, mm. that, that becomes, without spoiling the novel <laughs> too much, but that, that that's kind of, um, it, it becomes one of the climactic moments in the novel when, when we discover what happened there. Mm. So I guess, yeah, I guess intellectual and spiritual intimacy, I think they, that comes into the stories that the women tell. I think they, they're, they're telling these stories in a building that's close to um, the Sikh temple. Mm. I had to make sure to like make it geographically, like just a little bit outside the Sikh temple <laughs> so fundamentalists won't get angry at me for a setting. <laughs> Although I still have had people be like, oh, you know, it's, it's a bit uh, sacrilegious for you to put. And I was like, well, it's within the air vicinity. It's not in the temple. I think the, the women see the Sikh temple as their, yeah, the spiritual hub and the place that's kind of the heart of their culture and their community. So for them to be kind of a little bit a little bit adjacent to it and developing this other side of themselves, developing this side of themselves that has been oppressed, doing that through sharing of experiences, um, doing that through conveying to others these narratives in which they are in control, in which um, they have this kind of starring role. I think that's that's where all of those other intimacies come into play in the novel. Mm. Yeah, Mm. I think it's really interesting this idea of like spiritual intimacy because i think it's quite it's very prevalent in the asian society Mm -hmm. right like navigating what intimacy is like as a religious Mm -hmm. 
person or like growing up in a religious like household, how do you reconcile that kind of tension in the novel? So I think there's this this confusion sometimes um, between like spiritual or what the tenets of a religion are and then the actual like ways in which the traditions are carried forward. Mm-hmm. And I think that culturally, traditionally, yeah, there is this this sense that the the women kind of have to submit to men. That seems to be across religion, yep. right? There seems to be this idea of, of the men being the head of things, therefore the men being in control of sexuality, sexuality being something that, that men should have take pride in, but women should be more quiet about and mm. more secretive about. And I, I, I think that is very, very much societal. That's very mm. much... Um, a product of tradition and, and upbringing because I don't I think spiritually you know I, I just I cannot imagine that God doesn't want us to have sex <laughs> I cannot imagine that any religion wants women to suffer and so I think I think that was the that was what I wanted to reconcile mm. in the novel was this idea that mm. they actually aren't at heads with each other you know th- what these women are doing and that's why I kind of had them adjacent to the temple mm. um, what they're doing is actually very as close to a spiritual experience as you can get they're in a safe environment they are talking about being you know their fullest selves they are making up for lost time in a lot of ways and they are restoring that equality to relationships that equality that the the tenets of the Sikh religion was based on Mm. you know the idea was men and women are Mm. equal how do you think your story impacts like the younger generation in helping them understand themselves better and like Mm. knowing that you know being sexual or, you know, mm. wanting to explore your sexuality is normal and okay? Mm. Um, I think I think stories are a really good entry point for anyone. That whole idea that um, our narratives are visible, that mm. our narratives are important. When we read stories or we listen to stories about people like ourselves or people who have something in common with us. So, like, I grew up, you know, w- without much until sort of my teens – there wasn't much in the way of stories about young Punjabi girls navigating Singapore. There still aren't, right? Uh, or, you know, na- navigating life just anywhere. Mm. Still, there were entry points in books that I read, like books by Judy Bloom. She wrote honestly about what it's like to be an adolescent girl. Mm. She wrote, uh, she was an adult who told the truth in a way that so few adults were willing to. And that that is kind of what I strive to do. With, with fiction and that's especially with erotic stories for Punjabi widows I just wanted to tell the truth and I just wanted the, the stories of the women and the not not just the stories that they tell but also the stories of who they are mm. I wanted that to be an entry point for people reading that that book at whatever age that they could see the vulnerability in these characters mm. and match it to their own they could witness the shame of these characters and reflect on their own mm. and realize that it's yeah that, that they don't have to have that shame and that they're not alone in that shame. I think one of the biggest gifts that reading gave to me as a young child was the sense of there's more like you mm. and it's okay. Mm. This is a scene in the novel, the only scene in the novel actually that is... Um, narrated from the perspective or, or seen from the perspective of Nikki's mother. Uh, so Nikki's mother is aware that Nikki is teaching 
uh, creative writing classes. She doesn't know what the classes have turned into. And this is the first time that she kind of you know, discovers what, what's actually going on. Gita was gesticulating wildly. Her henna-dyed beehive quivered from the force of her movements. Then they told him his shoes were too muddy to enter their country. Can you believe these people? Luckily, Nikki and Mindy don't have to travel anywhere for work. These customs officials can be so fussy. I thought customs in Australia was strict about muddy shoes from overseas because of foreign soil particles mixing with theirs, Harpreet said, ignoring Gita's subtle jibe at her daughters, whose unimportant jobs didn't take them overseas. Le foreign soil. What's so foreign about Britain's soil? No, I'm telling you, these people were giving him a hard time because they thought he was Muslim. Having already invited herself to Harpreet's home for tea, Gita was pleased to have an audience for her grievances. Her intentions of boasting were never subtle. In the past ten minutes, she had mentioned her son's trip to Sydney no less than four times. Harpreet wished she had gone to the temple yesterday. She had avoided it because she knew Gita was an avid attendee of all Enfield Gurdwara's weekday programs. Then she ran into her in the Sainsbury's car park. She checked the clock. Still at least an hour before Mindy would finish her hospital shift and return home. Suresh said Sydney is very much like London, Gita tried again. What was he doing there? Harpreet asked. His company sent him there for a conference. All expenses paid. They even flew him on first class. He said, Mummy G, only the bosses fly on business class. There must be some mistakes. Nowadays, there's so many budget cuts that even the CEOs are flying in economy. But they said, no, no, there's been no mistake. All part of the company perks. That's very nice, Harpreet said. She had no news of her children to boast of. Mindy remained unmarried and Nikki... Well, Nikki had not said anything about her South Hall job since starting. Earlier this afternoon, Nikki had brought the box of sweets and then hurried off, claiming to have some appointment, just as Harpreet was about to ask her again how her job was going and what exactly she was planning to do with it. Harpreet got the vague sense that the job was not a subject Nikki wanted to discuss, which likely meant that she had quit, just like she had quit university. Gita responded to Harpreet's silence with a look of pity. Children will do as they please, she said generously. Not your children, Harpreet thought. But then who wanted sons like Gita's? Grown men who still called her mummy. How is your yoga class going? Harpreet asked to change the subject. Good, good, Gita said, improving my blood flow. We need this kind of exercise. The teacher is a very lean woman, but she's in her fifties. She says she's been practicing for only a few years, but she's gained a lot of flexibility. Huh. Yoga gives you a lot of strength. You should join us on Tuesday evenings. Harpreet could think of nothing worse than attending a yoga class with Gita and her gaggle of friends who spent more time backwards boasting than downward dogging. Personally, I prefer the gym. You joined a gym? Yeah, a few weeks ago, Harpreet said. I just brisk walk on the treadmill and ride the stationary bike sometimes. I like going in the mornings. It gives me more energy. Energy for what? Gita asked. 
At our age, we should be slowing down. Disapproval clung to her words. Everybody's different, Harpreet said. Leaning forward to pick up a piece of ladu, Gita's chemise dipped forward, revealing a deep line of cleavage. What I like about yoga is that it's all women. Is your gym unisex? Harpreet's face burned. She was trapped into answering Gita's question. So what if there were men in her gym? Yes, she said. Come to yoga, Gita said. It was a reprimand. There are other women like us there, she added. Huh. Women like us, Harpreet said vaguely. If a uniform and a code of conduct could be issued to Punjabi women over the age of 50, Gita would have designed it. How is Mindy doing? Gita asked. She's well, working today. Found anybody yet? I'm not sure, Harpreet said. This would be the default answer until Mindy was ready to get engaged. The truth was, Mindy had been seeing someone, but she hadn't mentioned him lately. Harpreet was afraid to ask. On one hand, she wanted Mindy to find someone and settle down. But it meant returning each evening to an empty home, and Harpreet wasn't ready for that. She'd better find someone quickly, now. Nah. If she spends all this time looking and comes up empty, it looks bad. She'll find someone, Harpreet said. There's no use pressuring the girl. She can think for herself. Of course she will, Gita murmured. Harpreet poured the last of her pot of chai into Gita's cup. Black flecks of Lipton leaves dotted the surface. Come, I'll filter them out, she said, taking the cup from Gita's hand. In the kitchen, she searched for her sieve and remembered having to throw away the one her mother had given her to take to England after Nikki and Mindy used it to scoop their goldfish out of its tank. She felt a pang of sadness. What was home without her family? Gita was brushing crumbs off her lips when Harpreet returned. No sugar, please, she said with the nobility of a dieter. But no combination of yoga poses could eliminate those ladu calories, Harpreet thought with smug satisfaction. Now tell me, Gita said after taking a sip of tea. Have you heard about these stories? What stories? The stories, Gita said. Harpreet found it difficult to mask her irritation. Why did people prefer repeating rather than explaining themselves? I don't know what you're talking about. Gita set her cup on its saucer. The stories that have been passed around the entire Punjabi community of London. When Mitu Kaur told me about them, I laughed and I didn't believe her. Then she brought one of the stories to my house. She said that she had read it aloud to her husband and after that, she shook her head. Well, people get affected by these things. She stared at Harpreet as if this would help her absorb her point. They had sex on her sofa, Gita whispered. What? She told you this? I was surprised as you are, but the story was very involving. What's the book called? Harpreet asked. It's not a book, Gita said. They're just typed up stories. Nobody knows exactly where they're coming from. What do you mean? The author's anonymous? Supposedly, there's no single author. These stories haven't been published anywhere. They're just being copied, scanned, emailed, and faxed all over London, and they're reaching an intended audience. Mitu Kaur has read three already, and all three have completely transformed her relations with her husband. During yoga class the other day, when the teacher asked us to lie on our backs and pull our knees to our chests, Mitu winked at me and said, just like last night, 
At our age, can you imagine? No, Harpreet said quickly, I can't. She was imagining, though. She was picturing herself with Mohan. Did Mitu tell you where she got the stories from? Her cousin passed them to her. Her cousin got them from a friend at the Enfield Temple who first heard about them from a Punjabi colleague who lives in East London. She lost the trail there because her cousin never asked the colleague where the stories came from, but Mitu Kaur isn't the only person I know who has come across these stories. Karim Singh's wife told me she's come across them as well. The one she told me about was very graphic. A Punjabi woman brings her car to a mechanic and they end up having sex on the bonnet. She ties his wrist to the wing mirror with her dupatta. Did that detailed? Harpreet asked. I've never come across stories like that with our people in them. Rumor has it the stories are coming from South Hall. That's ridiculous, Harpreet said with a laugh. I'd believe it if you said they were from Bombay, but if they're coming from England, they're not from there. No, it's true. Her aunt has a friend who attended a class there on how to write dirty stories. That made no sense. There would be riots in the community if such a thing existed, Harpreet said. That's why it's advertised as an English class. That's impossible. Harpreet froze. South Hall? English class? Harpreet swallowed and kept quiet. She reminded herself that Gita was a gossip. Gita exaggerated. There was no reason to think. You know what else she told me? The stories are being written by older women whose husbands have died. Can you imagine? Women like us. Huh? Harpreet croaked. She took a gulp of tea. Women like us. So this was the first part in our two-part episode with Balikor Jaswal. It's part of our partnership with the Arts House for Singapore Writers Festival 2020, organised by the National Arts Council. On the second part, Bali shares about her upbringing and the role that stories had to play in shaping her as an individual today. We also read out three story submissions from the pool of really beautifully written poems and short stories on intimacy that you guys shared with us in our little call for entries some weeks back. Tune in to both episodes on swfspin.live now. As usual, if you'd like to get in touch with us, follow us on Instagram at somethingprivatepod or email me at nicole at somethingprivate.fm.